Now, we are looking today in the book of Mark chapter 8, and we are looking at an area in which Jesus would be teaching and teaching us today at Caesarea Philippi, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And as he was stating the matter plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. We want to look with you at a map of Caesarea Philippi to get the scope of where this is at today. If you'll notice on the map up in the up northern top is Caesarea Philippi. It's different than the Caesarea which would have been to your left and down the Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea Philippi sits to the south of the Mount Hermon Mountains that rise up over 9,200 feet. It sits to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very, very beautiful place. Uh, it is a place in which there is tremendous waterways running down towards the Sea of Galilee that will eventually take their, find their way winding down through the Jordan River and going down into the Dead Sea. And here it was we find Jesus when he went out along with his disciples in verse 1 to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus is going to these villages that surround Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now Jesus asked many questions as he was interacting with his disciples and with others. Oftentimes, when someone was waiting for an answer, if you notice, Jesus asked a question instead. Here, Jesus asked a question when he said, who do people say that I am? And here it is in Caesarea Philippi. It is a beautiful place in Israel, in the northern part of that country, and you have many beautiful trees going up, and you have all of these rivers, and at places that we have been before, you can sit there and just listen to the waters that cascades down through the mountains, dropping down to even below sea level once it hits the Sea of Galilee. And here it will be that Jesus, it almost looks like for a moment, Jesus is taking a little time out with his disciples and just relaxing and just saying, let's just talk about who I am and who I really am. And, and as he's doing this, though, we need to get one more picture of what took place in Caesarea at this time. Caesarea was a place known for major idolatry. Some of the it was like a seedbed, a hotbed of idolatry. Some of the great 
works of idolatry like Baal came out of Caesarea. And there it was that even there are accounts of many wars against people supporting different idols in this area. There was the, the idol of Pan. These idols deny the Lord. They acknowledge, their, they say there is no God. Our God is Pan. There was another idol there in this area in which also was very strong called, it was cave gods. Many idols all worshiping cave gods. And here it is that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Maybe it's just uh, something we kind of miss, but notice where Jesus chose to ask this question. He asked it right in the middle of idolatry. In the seedbed of sin, religious idolatry, human worshiping, worshiping of different kinds of gods, and it was there that Jesus asked that question, who do people say that I am? Now, if you notice with me, they told him, and this is all the disciples, they told him saying, John the Baptist, Jesus, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, Jesus, some people are saying you're Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And so what they were saying is there's all kinds of responses to you, Jesus, as, as your word goes out. People are getting different messages, wondering about different things. Jesus asked his disciples, but then he continued by questioning them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Notice with me what has happened. We're, the disciples were looking out at Jesus, the healer, the miracle worker, the teacher, the one who loved and walked among people. And the Lord Jesus was bringing them closer and closer to something greater than simply a healer and a teacher. When he says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus now is penetrating down to the heart of the disciples. It's no longer about them. It's no longer about what they say, what they do, what they believe. It's no longer about someone else. Jesus is saying, who do you, do you say that I am? And Jesus, in the way that no man on the face of the earth ever could, was cutting to the core of the human heart, the very place that faith must begin, belief must begin. And as I look at this, I think about uh, these disciples. They knew first of him. Possibly all of them, maybe a few didn't, when he walked up to them and told them to leave everything and follow him, leave their nets behind. But as they watched him, they knew about him. They saw him. They saw him personally. They watched him perform miracles like the loaves of 5,000 we looked at, the 4,000. But now Jesus comes to another place with them when Jesus is asking them, do you know 
me. There's a verse we want to turn to and and look up on your screen in John chapter 17, verse 3, because Jesus, from the very beginning of his teaching, was teaching something deeper than just a creed. He was teaching something deeper than a religion, a philosophy, a concept, an idea. He's teaching something deeper than what church you're in. He's teaching something deeper than what all the other things that surround religious life. As he says these words, he says, this is life eternal. Notice the power of this, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. You see what Jesus is saying? When it's over, I'm here for one purpose, that you would know the living God, that the living God would be in your heart that your heart is changed by the living God. It is so easy in religious life to get so busy doing many good things. We go to church. We probably pray our prayers. We have our devotions. We have our fellowship. And yet, it is so easy to miss Jesus. In the middle of all of the activity of the spiritual life, we can miss Jesus. And here it is when Jesus is here and he asks this question. He is calling these disciples to think deeper than what they've saw, what they saw him do, what they've heard him teach. And he's now calling them to what personally is happening in your heart. Notice with me what happens after Jesus asks the question when he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? The word of God says Peter answered. Here is Peter, ever so bold and impetuous, the first guy up up to the block, but notice how he does it here. He says, said to him, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are Christ. And what Jesus was doing, what Peter was saying there is he was opening up the floodgates of belief that would sweep through the areas of Samaria and Galilee and into Jerusalem by one utterance that you are more than a man. You are more than a prophet. You are more than a king. You are Christ. And other accounts say you are the son of the living God. And something happens at this moment in that confession of Peter. And I want to draw a little lesson here that we can look at, maybe just get a simple analogy. This is water, H2O. This is just simple water we got out of the faucet last night. And over here is a compound. I won't tell you what it is, but it is very active. Its toxicity is equivalent to table salt but it's still very active. Now for a moment to get the lesson, let's take the water and this is, this is who man is without a confession of Jesus Christ. And let's take this, this is the spirit of the living God for just a moment by, by analogy. And when we take this right here and we drop this, be it ever so small, into this, 
the entire, entire component that is within this little bottle has completely changed by one touch, and now here's a little shake, but by one touch of this. This is no longer what this was. And this, be it ever so small, has transformed this in, into something that has the potential to kill every weed in your yard. Right there. And that's how small. And that's how real. But here it is. So small. The confession of Peter, it may originally seem to be small, but it is very large. Because when he would, would turn it, cry out and say, no, Lord Jesus, you're the son of the living God. He's saying, you're more than a man. You're more than a prophet. You're more than what any person calls you. But God, you are God. And everything changes by the utterance of this dear man, as he said, you're the son of the living God. You know, there's a verse as we look into this. Uh, Paul had it in Philippians chapter four, 3, verse 10. And I love this verse as Paul would open his heart up even as he walked among all the, all the people he taught with. But he shared his great passion of his heart, if you notice. It's like this is my big overwhelming challenge of my life. It does not leave me. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. And here Paul's saying, on a race, I'm coming to the end of the finish line. I'm almost there, but I've got one passion of my heart. I want to know him. Not about him. Not who others say he is. Paul is saying, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of eternal, of his sufferings. And Jesus was leading his disciples into understanding what happens with just a touch, just a mix of something that seems so insignificant until something so small came into this and changed it so completely. You know what else is interesting? This can't go back to what it was before. There's someone here today that might want to go back. You'll never go back in peace. You'll never go back. You can't go back. But because of one touch by Peter, as at this point, he says, you are the son of the living God. Everything was going to be different. Many of you have been there in your own spiritual journeys. When finally that time came, you resist the confession of Christ. You stiff-armed God like me. You went the other way. You maybe grabbed one of the gods. I don't know. We all have gods, little gods, maybe self-gods. And finally the day came when the Lord Jesus came to you as a person, and you knew there was one thing to do, and that was to confess him as more than man and confess him as the son of the living God. And this is what Peter did. Right in the middle of all of this religious idolatry, surrounded by all of these various gods and warring gods against each other, Peter was just saying, you are God. And I will claim that in every way. 
And as we look, there's one other verse I want, want you to look at, me, look at with me because it's beautiful uh, speaking of this relationship that Jesus enters into with his children. He seeks a relationship. You see, Jesus doesn't want just a religion. He doesn't want just a philosophy of life. He doesn't want my ideas. He wants my heart. He seeks a heart that is made perfect toward him. And here is a verse as Jesus was seeking this dear woman, Mary, after he had risen from the tomb in John chapter 20, verse 15 and 16. Mary, he was going to the tomb. He wasn't there any longer. The tomb was empty. She was weeping. She could not find him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher or master. And here Mary, who had walked with Jesus and had out of seven devils had came, was looking at Jesus now as someone so much different. Her life had been changed by the touch of Jesus. And she was no longer the same person that she once was. Jesus leaves this story, and we wander on down through this. As, as, notice what he said in verse 30, though. He warned them not to tell anyone about this. Oftentimes with Jesus, you'll notice that sometimes he'll say, go home to your friends and tell them. Other times he'll say, don't tell anybody. And I've wondered many times, why did he say that here, and why did, did he not say it here? But it's very, very possible that where he was right here, he knew that the people could never understand this till later. They would not get this yet. This is too profound. It is too great for the natural mind to ever be able to comprehend in any way. And so Jesus said, don't say it now. And he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I want us to notice where Jesus has went with this. He has went from a confession of Peter that was so sharp and so profound and so far-reaching, both outward but in the heart of Peter, and now Jesus begins to point to the cross. You know, I think for many years, a young guy, I would read this and not really get the context of the flow. That's what's so beautiful about the word of God. You get the context that comes with the text if we keep looking at it. And as we look at this, all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, now guess what? There I'm going, I'm going. And see what's interesting. There was a lot of roads that led out of Caesarea. The roads of river, there were all of those various forms of idolatry were going to move into Samaria and Galilee and Jerusalem and down into other regions. You see, the enemy is working too. He works overtime also. He wants to twist and pervert and corrupt any way he possibly can. But you know what Jesus was beginning saying? There's a path that's going out of Caesarea that's going to move towards Jerusalem to a place called Calvary where I'm going to give my life as a perfect sacrifice.
And as he was stating the matter plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Notice verse 32. Peter says, come here, Jesus. I gotta fill you in. You have just said you're the son of God. Gods don't die on crosses. Look around you. Gods don't sacrifice. Jesus, you're pointing the wrong direction. That isn't the direction you go. We're going up maybe to Jerusalem. We're going to build you a new temple. You're going to sit on a throne like prophesied with the prophets throughout the, in the old Bible. We believe that, Jesus. And notice what Jesus did. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, but he, but turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus looked out at these disciples, said, I can't let you get deceived by this. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's interest. You're missing the message that you need so deeply that I did not come to be a Lord. I did not come to be a king. I came to be a living sacrifice that was prophesied also in books like Isaiah, and we'll see a place in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5, where there it was, this living sacrifice was spoken of hundreds and hundreds of years before when it says he, this was Jesus, Isaiah was writing, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one whom hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jesus was saying, I am going to a cross to give my life after you have heard the proclamation from the very lips of Peter that you are the son of the living God. You know, and uh, so often you've noticed this, how we get things kind of twisted. It's hard to, even communication at its very best has gaps. Used to have a young man that worked worked for me many years ago, and this young man was in uh, Washington State. The office we had was right in a little area called Kittitas Valley, and from there we we serviced the railroad going off into Seattle, up to Canada, down south into California. But we had an area we were servicing there, and this young man he was a great young guy, but every time we communicated, I would try to get the message through on directions, and we didn't have GPS as good as we have them today, and it just didn't seem to work out. Some of you have had that experience. So one day, this uh, young man needed to go to Spokane, Washington, and I gave him directions, and I laid the, it out on a piece of paper, and I drew it out by map, but plus how you turn, and I and I told him, I says, now, when you get over to Interstate 90, you turn right. You got about 260-some miles of Spokane from that point. And he thanked me, and he took off. And it was about three hours later, he called me. He says, I can't find the place I'm supposed to work today. 
And I asked him, well, where are you at? And he gave me a, a, a road that didn't seem familiar, and he gave me another road that didn't seem familiar. And then finally, after a period of communication, I realized when he hit the Interstate 90, he went the wrong way and he got, went to Seattle instead of Spokane. So now they were, he was 480 or 90 miles apart from where he was supposed to go. And it worked out. He's a great young guy. He, he has a wonderful family today. He's not that young anymore. But uh, one of the things I was thinking about and studying, how many times, just like with the disciples, we get something in our mind. Just like these disciples, you're not going there, but the Lord is thinking there. You've noticed that in how God even works. We think there, and God say, no, over here. We're going this way, and God says, no, you're going that way. And this is really what the Lord was telling Peter, is, Peter, you haven't seen the entire picture yet. You know, when Jesus went on from Galilee, and let, I mean, from, the, from Caesarea Philippi, and he went back into the area of Galilee and Jerusalem, and finally he would go on and give his life as a ransom at the cross for all of us. And Jesus taught a lot about being servants, and he taught a lot about really what it was to be a master. He taught, he took tubs, basins, and towels and washed people's feet to show them what true love was. He taught them about sacrifice before he ever got to Calvary. He taught them lessons about turning another cheek and walking another way. And this was the Jesus that we know of in the Bible. But the path of our Lord Jesus took him to the place we call Calvary. It's that place, that old rugged cross, and here it was that Jesus was going to go, and he was going to give his life, and here it was on Caesarea Philippi. What was so beautiful would never be realized till Jesus gave his life at Calvary as the perfect sacrifice. You see, it wasn't just for those disciples. It was for everyone that was caught in false gods, even surrounding Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus was the one who knew that the one sacrifice for sin forever could open the heart of man to see that he lives and can live for everyone. I love the lesson when I think of Caesarea because it also shows how Jesus just reaches out. You know what he does? He doesn't miss a corner of the church. He doesn't miss a struggling person inside this building. He misses no culture. He misses no race. He misses no social status. Jesus Christ touches every single person when we will believe. You know, Jesus asked a question I give us as we come towards the end of the message this morning, Luke twenty two twenty seven. 27. It's just a question that Jesus asked. Oftentimes he asked a question, questions, but here it was that he says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one that serves he was a servant. Is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one that serves. And here it was that Jesus was saying, I, in going to the cross to give my life, will demonstrate not only service, but sacrifice beyond anything the world has ever seen, ever before, or has ever seen even up till today. In some ways, we, are, we have looked this morning at a very simple message, but we have looked at possibly the most profound truth 
that any man or woman on the face of the earth must wrestle with to find eternal life. And we come to a place that all of a sudden we recognize Peter was the one exception that when Jesus asked the question, he said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And everything changed. And I don't know how it is with those of you that are here this morning, but somewhere within this building, maybe someone, there probably is, that has never confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He went on and gave his life as a perfect sacrifice. At Calvary, he was the one who was able to pray even, Lord, forgive these people. They don't even know what they're doing. It was at Calvary Jesus said, I will give one sacrifice for sin forever. That you and them and all of the ones who are are steeped in God's could cry out by faith, you are the son of the living God, Lord, and I believe. Oh, I think of the woman in the Bible that cried out one time when she encountered the Lord Jesus, and she said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you been there? Have you been there? When you've cried out to God, confessing him as Lord, confessing him as everything you are and everything you'll be and all of your needs supplied, but yet you've confessed the Lord Jesus, I'm struggling. Peter would do that too later. But it is amazing when he began to remind them that this is where I'm going. I'm going to a cross. You see, when God calls men and women to serve him, he doesn't call them to crowns. He doesn't call them to positions. He calls them to crosses. He doesn't call them to die for their sins. Jesus did that. But he does call them to be identified with Jesus and to walk with Jesus completely and to follow him even as he leaves that one place and goes on to a place that would not be popular, it would not be appreciated, it would be despised and rejected by men on every level and cast of society. And this is where Jesus went to deliver us from our sin. Today is communion. It is a day we take the bread and the cup and we partake together, remembering the one sacrifice for sin forever. We remember what Jesus was telling the disciples he was going to do here. And here it is, we have the privilege of, as his children, to remember his sacrifice by touching something so simple and yet so powerful because it reminds us of something so great. But here's a verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that I want to give us as we enter into this, and we'll have a prayer, and then our our worship team will be up here, but it says this, but a man must examine himself. We can put in there, a woman must examine herself. We must say, Lord, am I in the faith? If I am partaking of communion today, am I in the faith? Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who cleansed me from my sin? And can I say as Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Paul says, a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. Examine and then eat. 
But what he's also saying indirectly, but very directly in another way, is don't eat without examining. The word of God says in John, he that has a son has life, and he that doesn't have the son of God doesn't have life. And he's saying don't enter into eating without examining. Lord, am I in the faith? But then he says examine and then eat. Not because we're strong, but because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. But I want to call everyone here this morning to this time of examination as we enter into this. And if there is anyone here that has yet never stepped forward and said, Jesus, you are the Christ and Son of the living God, don't let this opportunity get away from you. This must be maybe the last time you'll ever have to confess this. The Word of God says you can eat worthily and you can eat completely free of sin and guilt and shame because he gave his life for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us things at your feet, Lord, that we would never know unless we would sit at your feet, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for the, the living sacrifice that you gave at Calvary. When you were reviled and buffeted by men, you were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, oh, Lord, we confess that we hid from you, that it was as it were our faces from you. Even the disciples ran from you. But, Lord Jesus, you stayed there. And you bore your sin and our sin in your own body on the tree that we being dead to sin can live to righteousness by the stripes that have healed us through your death. Lord, take this time of communion and within every heart may it be a time of intimate communion with you. From the youngest to the oldest, I pray, Lord Jesus, that each person here can recognize that you are completely sufficient, just as Peter did. And you are everything, Father. And because of your sacrifice, we can enter into communion today, worthy by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are. In Christ's name we pray, amen.